When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. I'm Stephanie Safarian, and this is episode 96. You are listening to the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast, a show about living simply and sustainably with your family. Here's your host, Stephanie Safarian. Hello there and welcome back. On today's show, we are discussing the nuts and bolts of self-sufficiency. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents even, they were old pros at preparing for emergencies, right? They preserved food. They had gigantic pantries. They perhaps lived through or remember their parents' stories of the Great Depression and World Wars, so they knew intuitively the importance of being self-sufficient. These days, in 2019, most of us are a generation removed from crisis. We're heavily dependent on products and stores that make our lives easier, and there's nothing wrong with that. I do not have time to wash all the laundry my family creates by hand, so I thank the inventor of the washing machine every darn day. But is there such a thing as being too dependent on convenience? On today's show, we are talking about why exactly we should rely less on the supermarket, less on the gas station, less on modern conveniences, and rely more on our own skills and talents. My guest today is Kelly Morris. Kelly is a blogger and a homesteader who has mastered the lost arts of foraging, canning, bartering, creating a working pantry, and many more. Kelly is on the show today to give us some stark and honestly some difficult truths about what's behind that convenience curtain, so to speak. Kelly is also here to give all of us some solid self-sufficiency tips. This episode is jam-packed with information, so let's just get right into it today. Enjoy the interview. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you. How are you doing? I am great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. Well, I'm really looking forward to picking your brain about self-sufficiency because that is something I have been working on in my own life for a little while. But before we get into any of that, I would love for you to tell the listeners who you are, what you do, and what you blog about. Well, my name is Kelly Morris. I live in Southwest Ohio uh, on a 10-acre farm with my husband and my children. I have, uh, I've homesteaded for about 20 years now, first in a suburban home on a very small lot, and then here on the farm for about the last 10 years. 
I did not grow up with any kind of a farming or homesteading background. As a matter of fact, my husband and I both grew up in the suburbs. Um, I was completely incapable of keeping a house plant alive. And the only thing I knew how to make in the kitchen uh, was a Pop-Tart. Anyway, I author a website called Gently Sustainable. And that's where I discuss how to be self-sufficient and sustainable in a world of convenience and consumerism. I'm just very curious as to if all you knew how to cook was a Pop-Tart, what got you so interested in homesteading and self-sufficiency and sustainability that you not only, you know, put your toe in and dabbled in homesteading, but you moved to a 10-acre farm and you dedicated your life to homesteading? What was the turning point where this became not just a hobby, but but your passion? Uh, it's called motherhood. When uh, Now, I, I have to be honest. Uh, with my first child, uh, I was just proud about the fact that she hadn't tasted soda till she was two. Okay, not a great example. But by the time, it was about seven years later before I had my second child and uh, second of nine. And suddenly... All of these things became important to me. I wanted my baby to have the best. I was going to breastfeed more successfully than I had the first time. I wanted him to have nothing but organic food and absolutely no toxins in the household and, and you know, all of those things. I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. Actually, you know, that was 1993. The internet may have been around, but it wasn't in my house. You know, and we were still looking through books and and uh, the library. So if if it hadn't been written about and wasn't in your local library, it was hard to find the information. How did you find the information? Well, you know what? I found a book called The Tightwad Gazette by Amy Decision. It came actually as a newsletter, and it was really about being very frugal. But what was interesting, she lived on a farm, uh, I forget, in the Northeast, they had six children. She talked about her garden and all the ways that really it was frugal, but it was much more than that. It was, even though these were not the terms being used, she was very, um, you know, she was very zero waste. She was very, you know, re upcycling things and reusing things. I was hearing these, these terms, you know, and I thought I can do that. You know, I, I'm, I can do that. So that was really where I started was just making use of what I had and reusing things. I mean, uh, we made glorious birthday parties out of the craziest things, you know, recycled boxes that we had made into games and and peanut butter jars that we made into Pooh Bear heads for the as party favors. I mean, we, it was just crazy, you know, that um, this this creativity that just started coming out of me that I didn't realize was in there. Once I realized that, you know, it was okay to look at an item for a second time and say, well, what can I do with this now? I had never understood that concept growing up. Well, you mentioned so much in that answer, but what I took away is that frugality and holistic health and sustainability and self-sufficiency and minimalism, all these concepts are really beautifully and intricately intertwined. I'm wondering, though, not only what is self-sufficiency to you, but more importantly, why is it important for all of us to have some of those good old-fashioned skills in a world in 2019 when you can go to the store and you can pick up food or everything's automated to make our lives easier? Why do we still need those skills? 
Well, you know, the good news is that we are you know, so blessed to live in a country where all of our needs and wants can be fulfilled with the click of a mouse. You know, it's truly amazing the conveniences we have. But that said, the unfortunate truth to all of this convenience is that the grid that it all operates on is extremely fragile. And, you know, think about the last time you heard that a snowstorm was on its way or a hurricane, depending on where you live. What's the first thing people do? You know, they run to the grocery store to stock up on staples and they show it on the news. I always find this amusing. Um, I mean, bad weather comes just about every year. Why not just keep a few days worth or more of food and water stored away in a closet or a pantry, you know, for those times? But what people don't realize is that the grocery stores only keep about three days worth of food on their shelves. So what happens when there's a run on the store? Well, it's gone pretty quickly. And then what? Well, the trucks can't run in bad weather. And then you're out of luck. Think of all the hurricanes we had this year that have wiped out crops. You know, that was our food. You know, earlier this year, the country experienced record rainfall that prevented farmers from doing their spring planting. This situation could jeopardize this year's uh, this fall's crop, and that still remains to be seen. The farmers are harvesting now. Remember that what's on the shelves at our grocery store is last year's harvest. So if the farmers can't plant, there won't be a harvest this year. I think what's important here is to remember that life happens. Weather happens, sickness happens, unemployment happens. It's important to be prepared for these situations. I'm going to cut you off right there because your answer, it mirrors really some dire forecasts of the world in the next couple decades, right? Whether you believe in climate change, whether you don't, you know, hurricanes, bad storms, snowstorms, they're going to be more frequent. And if supermarkets are only keeping three days worth of food, uh, <laughs> you best find another way to provide for yourself and your family. And as we're staring down climate change and some really potentially catastrophic futures for all of us, uh, the, the solution does not lie in relying on the supermarket or relying on companies or relying on brands to provide our sustenance. It's going to ultimately rely on us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I read a book last year by Ted Koppel, who was a broadcast journalist for Nightline for many years. Um, and the book is called Lights Out. Have you, have you heard of this book? Yes. And I love Ted Koppel. <laughs> okay. I do as well. And so in this book, he discusses how fragile our power grids are. Now, this conversation about power grids um, used to only be held in like prepper communities, but now it's becoming mainstream because the facts can't be denied. You know, Ted goes on to say that any of the nation's three power grids could be taken down with just a laptop. And without power, the country comes to a grinding halt. So think about that for a moment. No power, no water, no sewage, no refrigeration. Cash registers won't work. ATMs won't work. People won't get their paychecks, their medicine. Hospitals won't be able to operate. Police will want to stay home to protect their own families. You know, it would get ugly. And the government, as lights out, says, has no plan for a grid down situation. You will be on your own if it ever happens. Well, let's get right into how a listener listening today who 
may want to be a bit more self-sufficient, where do they start? What would you suggest they even do first? Well, I tell you, the first thing I would do is a lot of reading. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who was asked if he had five years to live, what would he do? And I believe the answer was he would spend the first four years planning. Planning is the best way to avoid big mistakes. And uh, and that is why, um, you know, I consider part of being successful at this lifestyle um, is being a, a lifelong learner. You've got to be willing to read and put the time in and, and read the hard books, you know, not just the blogs, although we, we like blogs. I write one. But, you know, the, the books that were written back in the day when, you know, when this wasn't cool, you know, um, books like The Self-Sufficient Life and How to Live It by John Seymour it is a classic. That was really my first homesteading book. And I still go back and, and look at it from time to time. Going to extension classes. Uh, every, most counties, I believe, have an extension office. You know, ours is through Ohio State University. And every winter, they offer classes. I, I always take classes in the wintertime. You know, get to know people. Find out what other people are doing. So there's there's a lot of learning and thinking and planning that goes into this far before you ever get your shovel in the ground. A big aspect of self-sufficiency is, of course growing, harvesting, and then preserving the food that you've grown. So I would love to talk to you about preserving food. I've done an episode on canning, but for listeners who just want to dabble in preserving their own food that they've grown, where do you even start? Well, um, you know, if you don't learn to preserve food, you are going to remain a prisoner to the grocery store. You can grow a fabulous garden, but you know, fresh food only lasts a few days. And after that, you know, then what? If I were starting again, the be- my beginning point would be freezing food. It's incredibly easy, especially fruit. So freezing food is, is very easy. And dehydrating food is pretty simple. You just need to know a few tricks. Again, hit the library and read, read good books on this type of thing. The next step would be water bath canning. Now, people get canning confused. Um, There's water bath canning, which is in boiling water, and then there's the really scary, ugly pressure canning, the the thing that makes a lot of noise and that is scary. The water bath canning is pretty easy. It's not too much more difficult than boiling water and handling a few things. Again, you need to know the steps. I've had the same ball canning book forever. I really recommend you stick with the basics of canning stick with the with you know an old classic like ball you know where they keep up with some of the government regulations and things that will help you can safely but water bath canning is mostly fruit and then tomatoes and you can do an awful lot you know you can stay fairly busy with that and that's also uh, how you make jam jam is very simple and so forgiving and I, I I make a lot of jam every year so that that would be my second step I wouldn't try pressure canning until I was pretty comfortable with both of those things. Now, pressure canning is for low-acid foods, which are most vegetables. Again, other than tomatoes, tomatoes are actually considered a fruit. I learned from an elderly woman who lived next door to us in that very tiny house that we were renting. And she said, honey, I can't stand up. I'll sit in a chair and I'll, I'll bark orders at you, but I'll teach you. And um, we didn't have a lot of money at that time. 
I looked high and low at garage sales. I found a water bath canner and some jars, and that's how I got started. So as long as you learn to do it correctly, it doesn't change much, (laughs) you know, and you get faster and it gets easier and you realize what a blast it is. I mean, there's nothing prettier than than cans of your jars of tomatoes or whatever coming out of the canner and their lids popping. And it's just, it's just fabulous. You you just, uh, I hate that people miss out on this. I I wish I had grown up doing it. It seems to me like canning is almost a lost art of sorts. My grandmother canned and somewhere between her and me, it was lost. Uh, I did do a water bath strawberry jam. And it was very, it was honestly easier than I thought it was going to be. And better than the ease was was the satisfaction of being able to <laughs> do that on my own. So next steps for me definitely is the more industrial canning. But on the same line of food, foraging is something that I've thought a lot about, but I just don't know if <laughs> if it's going to happen for me. I, you know, follow on Facebook people picking dandelions and making all these dandelion things. I would love to know what foraging looks like for you in your life. Okay. Well, I, I, I felt the exact same way. Uh, I was scared to death. I was going to pick something that was going to kill me or my children. But you've got to remember foraging, okay, foraging in itself is the act of finding and harvesting wild food. And people have been foraging for food since the beginning of time, all right? You know, we've only had the grocery store as we know it for about the last hundred years. I believe it was a Piggly Wiggly in 1916. Before that, we had general stores and small shops, but people then depended on their own skills and bartering to get what they needed, you know, and this is all pre-industrial revolution. You know, so these skills were necessary for survival. Now, here in Ohio, I hear about people foraging for morel mushrooms. I didn't think too much about it, though, till we moved to this property and we had these woods. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get to know my property. I'm going to get to know these woods. And I got a field guide that I had had from my days of homeschooling, uh, the Peterson Field Guide, Edible Wild Plants. And uh, the one I have is Eastern and Central North America. Get the one for your part of the country, you know, obviously. And uh, and I tell you, it'll, it's got beautiful pictures. It'll help you identify plants. If you're not sure, you know, take a picture. Pull, actually, there's some pretty good apps, although I haven't found any that are super accurate. I would take the plant to the extension office or have someone who's lived in the area forever that knows their stuff help you identify what it is. But you know, I made a commitment to myself. I was going to learn three plants a year and I was going to identify them. I was going to draw them. I was going to look up all their uses and I was going to master three a year. And then I, you know, I would be over the fear. For me, every year I forage mulberries, which grow on my property, as well as black, wild black raspberries, which I found accidentally this little patch by the by the uh, stream. And, it, and it's just very isolated. I just happened to stumble on it. It was the coolest thing. Every year I pick from there. Um, we have walnuts. I do pick dandelions, violets, and the numerous greens that are, that are mild greens like chickweed and goosefoot and things like that. Once you recognize them, I mean, this is organic food for free. All you have to do is know what it is and then learn ways to use it. 
Okay, so what do we do with what we forage? I freeze the mulberries and the black raspberries for smoothies or cobblers in the winter. Now, the dandelion, I dig up the root and I dry that out and I make tea. I use the baby leaves. You don't want the, you know, the summer mature leaves, but the new spring leaves for salad. And I dry the flowers to make salve. I use the greens in in salads, in stir fries, and even in smoothies. And uh, as you get comfortable with them, again, you know, once you begin to recognize them and you know that what you have found is truly what you think it is, boy, it's a lot of fun. It's really a lot of fun. And you begin to look for new things. And, and you know, and, and I just thought, gosh, why doesn't everybody know this? Gosh, if people could just learn to pick the mulberries that are falling on the sidewalk or on their car, you know, they, they could eat those, <laughs> you know. What I'm taking away from your response is that you do an awful lot of reading and you don't just go out into the forest and pick some stuff that looks like some other stuff and eat it. You, you know, you've educated yourself on the front end. So you actually, (laughs) you actually know what you're doing. Moving along the same vein of food and self-sufficiency and being prepared in the event of an emergency, I want to talk to you about your pantry. You talk a lot on your website about, I think you use the term working pantry. What is a working pantry? Why should we all have one? And what does yours look like? Well, it's funny you ask that. Um, We are transitioning into becoming empty nesters here in a couple of years. But I am used to keeping at least six months of food and water for 11 people. (laughs) But I'm finding that this isn't necessary anymore. So I'm paring my pantry down a bit as the last two kids had head off to college here in the last couple of years. But that said, I am a huge pantry proponent. And the biggest reason is I hate grocery shopping. I don't like to go to the store ever. Uh, I I avoid it as much as possible. What I do like to do is shop sales for the things that we eat and stock up when the price is lowest, the things that I can't grow or maybe didn't grow. And the holidays coming up are a great time to stock up your pantry. All right. So my pantry is hybrid. In other words, it's about about half of it or maybe 60% of it is the food that I either canned or dehydrated myself. Uh, The other half or so is canned foods that maybe I purchased, baking staples, grains, cereals. I have had pantries in in every house I've lived in, and I've lived in tiny little 900-square-foot homes. I have had little pantries under a staircase. I've stored things in closets, under beds. If you really want to do it, you'll find a spot. In the house I'm in, it's nice because I do have a small pantry in the kitchen. Um, And that is what I operate from. I don't really have the room anywhere else for a larger pantry to store more. Um, But you know what? I moved some things around again as the kids have left home and I found a little corner downstairs. I measured and I was able to get two shelves that I already had. I mean, they they just squeezed right in there. And so that was fabulous. And so I work from the upstairs pantry and I restock from the basement pantry. All of the bulky things, including off-season canning supplies, um, my grain mill, you know, things like that, all those big bulky things go downstairs. And so when I bring home, you know, a case of whatever or a 50-pound bag of whatever, it goes down there. Now, it's not pretty and, you know, won't make better homes and gardens, but it's safely stored. 
<clears throat> we also have two big freezers outside full of meat and other frozen foods. Uh, we do grow our own beef and chicken. We will probably transition down to one freezer soon. Uh, I'm not a super big freezer fan because, again, if that power goes out, but um, but I, th- I, you know, I think it's okay. It's okay to have a freezer. I just wouldn't want to depend on it. I recommend that people begin with just a three-day food supply, food and water, and then just build from there. So it doesn't have to be difficult or fancy or amazing. Think about what you had for breakfast today and what you had for lunch today, and then maybe what you had for dinner and multiply it times three, and, um, and you've got it. And then water. Everybody needs about a gallon of water a day per family member. Uh, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big plastic fan, so I don't like to bring home those gallons. No, you know, no offense if you do. I think we're all guilty of that. But I've got some big six-gallon containers that I store water in, um, and then I, you know, I also harvest water, and I've got different ways that I do that here. Um, you know, even even just a one-day supply, it's something that maybe you wouldn't touch. And uh, and I think it also depends on the, the area that you live in. You know, what are the storms coming in your area? You know, our power goes out probably six or eight times in the year. And so it's something that I know is coming. I know will happen. And so um, I think I would just assess where you're at and how the weather is and, and what's going on. I think it's also great, too, that what, what happens when everybody in the house gets the flu? You don't have to go to the store. You've got plenty there to, you know, to take care of yourself or even unemployment. You know, what if you lose your job suddenly? Wouldn't it be nice to know, you know, you had a month's worth or six months worth or whatever of food and water to take care of the family till you could get back on your feet. So some other things that you might want to store would be like over-the-counter medications. These are things that I store as well. Feminine protection. I hate paper towels and we do have some in the storage down there just for an emergency some extra laundry detergent. Don't forget your pets, pet food, um, and that kind of thing. Band-Aids, some extra hydrogen peroxide, just some things that, you know, are pretty inexpensive to pick up, put them in a little extra basket you have laying around the house and, and put them up on your shelf, you know, and just begin to store things. Another thing I did this year, I, I love fresh nuts and I um, ordered some nuts from California and they came in a vacuum sealed bag. I opened that bag and I put them in quart jars and then I, I sealed them with the food saver. It has a little attachment, which is super great. And so they're sealed and they're just shelf stable and they're they're sitting on the shelf. Everybody knows not to touch those without mom's permission. You know, you're going to store what you like. My list is going to look different than your list, but you know, some basics are always, you know, always plenty of peanut butter. <laughs> you know, it just depends. Depends if you've got kids or, you know, how you do things and what you like to eat. So I'm, I know you said you have nine children. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. I'm curious, purely for my curiosity, I'm wondering how how long do you think your pantry could provide for your family? Well, again, normally I would try to have enough food for about six months. So I had food everywhere. Um, I, I stored it anywhere I could store it. Today, if you were to walk down in my pantry and freezer, um, probably about three months. And we've let things whittle down a little bit. I'm waiting for some holiday sales. And, you know, of course, we've got all of our canned goods from the summer. So, you know, and, and that's a thing. It'll ebb and flow as you use it. Don't be afraid to use it. Use, you, you know, things expire. Use them and replace them. And we've talked a lot about emergency preparedness today and food. But 
One other aspect of your blog is the joy and the beauty that comes with self-sufficiency. And you talk a little bit about off-the-grid living. You suggest even that we have an off-the-grid night every once in a while. Can you tell me why those are so important and why they're so enjoyable? Well, I think having an off-the-grid night is is pretty neat. You know, when the kids, when the power goes out, you know, the kids panic. Everybody panics. But if you practice a planned event, it's it's amazing that you can come up with all these ways as a family to not only entertain yourselves, but provide maybe some heat with a fire and lighting maybe with a couple of candles, you know, just for a couple of hours. For me, I love when the power goes off because I can see where my gaps are. <laughs> what do I need more of, less of? Are my solar lights working? You know, do I have enough candles and flashlights handy? Maybe I need to stock up on some batteries or whatever. It's it's a good, it's a little pop quiz for me. So I, I kind of enjoy it. But, um, you know, for those of you with kids who are way too hooked on their devices, an off-grid night can be a great deterrent to that. Make a fire outside, make some s'mores, tell stories, sing, have fun. And uh, when I found, again, raising a big family, six sons, sometimes everybody needed just a two-hour off-grid timeout. <laughs> We're all going to relax, no screens, no phones. We're going to look at each other. We're going to talk and we're going to reconnect. I love it. And I'm totally enacting that in my own household. Not not so much for my girls. My girls are little. They're not into technology yet. They're, they don't panic when the lights go out. But for more so for my husband and I, uh, we we sit down and we resort to the phones and the laptops and the TV more than more than we should. So thank you for that suggestion. For listeners who want to glean your wisdom from your blog, where can they find you? Well, I am at www.gentlysustainable.com. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Pinterest. I'm not on anything else. (laughs) Uh, We also, we have the Facebook page, but then we have a private club called The Buzz and uh, pun intended. And if you want to go more more in depth with things and you really want to ask the nitty gritty questions, you want to, you want to join the buzz. I, I'm going to join because you've <laughs> just made me see where my deficiencies lie. I've learned so much from you. Thank you so much, Kelly. This was a really enlightening conversation. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Kelly Morris. I have linked to Kelly's blog as well as all those books she mentioned in this week's show notes, which you can find at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 096, mamaminimalist.com forward slash 096. Now, just a side note here, I recorded this interview with Kelly a month ago. So a month before releasing it, I recorded it. And in that month, I've really been thinking long and hard about how I can prepare for an emergency. And so I had said in the interview with Kelly that it was time I started pressure canning. And thanks to a bunch of kind souls in our Sustainable Minimalist Facebook group who answered my questions and walked me through it. I have successfully canned, since recording this interview, onions, carrots, potatoes, and kale. So my working pantry is slowly coming to fruition. 
Thank you so much to my Facebook group. And thank you so much to Kelly for giving me that final push to try something new and flex my own self-sufficient muscles. Now, this week's eco tip is from Jennifer. Jennifer offers up less of a what to do tip and more of a what not to do tip, but I love it just the same. Jennifer says that she's a big composter and she has heard me say on the podcast before that you can compost dryerland. But Jennifer says that that might not be the case depending on what you're putting in the dryer. So she sometimes dries her children's athletic clothes and athletic clothes are stretchy and what commonly makes that stretchiness is of course plastic. So she's not going to put that dryer lint in her compost bin and that's totally understandable. Thank you Jennifer for mentioning that. In my house I only dry cotton towels. Cotton is a natural fiber and can be composted. So eco tip clarification, you can only compost your dryer lint if you are drying natural fibers. Thank you so much, Jennifer. All right, on next week's show, it's a big one. It is the annual eco-friendly holiday gift guide roundup. I'm giving you my best homemade DIY gift suggestions for the loved ones in your lives. And I'm also offering up some of my favorite eco-friendly brands for those times and those people when you just need to buy a gift. So stay tuned for that if you have some people on your holiday list that make you stumped year after year. I will see you then. Have a great week. Take care.